This episode of A Medic's Mind is brought to you by Wintertickle Press, a premier publishing house who specializes in non-fiction mental wellness books based on lived experiences. Titles include Save My Life School, Daily Lessons of Save My Life School, Brainstorm Revolution, and Stories Finding Your Wings, all available for order through Chapters Indigo, Barnes & Noble, and Amazon US, UK, and Canada. You can follow Wintertickle Press on Facebook at Wintertickle Press, or find them on Twitter at Wintertickle. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to A Medic's Mind, the podcast. So this is going to be uh, an episode with some things that you've heard before. What I decided to do was take Jackets 1 and Jackets 2. Uh, I, I have two podcasts, Jacket Part 1 and Jacket Part 2, uh, as, as part of a you know a, a piece that I'm writing for uh, to, to hopefully be published into the book. And I have uh, combined them together so that you can hear them in one place as opposed to hearing two separate podcasts. So uh, Jackets 1 and Jackets 2 are combined in this post. If you'd like to hear more about what made the the post uh, pop into my mind and what, uh, you know, what uh, sort of motivated me to write them, uh, feel free to go to the, uh, the episodes entitled Jacket 1 and Jacket 2. Uh, and you can get some more information there. But for now, I'm just going to let, uh, you know, the... Uh, the episodes speak for itself. Uh, jackets one and jackets two. These are pieces of me, and they represent really huge parts of where I came from, where I've been, and who I am now. And they're coming up next. You may have heard of the term "worn a lot of hats." Well, I've not owned many hats, at least not in the way of which it is meant. Jackets, though, I have owned and worn a few of those. Jackets of all sizes, shapes, materials, and purposes. And the most painful thing that I have ever had to do was take them off. Jacket number one. Men's. Dark green land. Size. 7338. Production. August. 1988. Shell. 65% wool. 35% polyester. This jacket was not gifted to me. It was earned. And to this day, and likely for the remainder of life that I have left, it will remain one of the most important and influential garments that I have ever worn. It has seen death, celebration of life, graduations, and achievements. It has hugged my skin as the rest of me rattled on those cold, unforgiving days. It is a jacket that boasts respect, devotion, and honor. It is a rare coat, worn by only a few, a damn few. Tape measures, pins, and chalk were the ingredients that gave this jacket life. And when it was given to me to hold, wear, and care for, it grew with me as well. First, no chevrons. Then one. Then two. Corporal Hennigan. That is what this tightly fitted and immaculate jacket screamed to the world. Its buttons gleamed flawlessly when embraced by the kiss of a warm sun. Badges and accoutrement adorned its tunic, proudly on display, boasting a humble pride and maybe even some bravado. I was just a boy when I first felt the threading and stitching of this glorious wear. My eyes were young and unburdened when navigating the dark forest green of its pelt. What a sight to behold. What a feeling to don. The jacket was no longer 65% of one thing and 35% of another. It was now solely 100%. Me. The jacket belonged to a soldier, standing on guard for thee. True. North. Strong and free. When that day in August came, it was the first time that I would don that uniform with any sense of reluctance. 
Bravado had evaporated like droplets of rain to a hot sidewalk. The uniform now felt uncomfortable, albeit necessary. I was young. 23, actually. That's how old I was when I held my first dead body. The body of a brother. Well, what was left of him, anyway. On August 11th of 2006, Corporal Andrew James Eichlenboom, Boomer, was killed while on mission in Afghanistan. 23 years of life, sacrificed within the blink of an eye, many miles from home. I had just returned to the unit from another tasking when I first learned of his death. My brother, Bowman, told me about it. After his utterances, the car filled with a thick blanket of silence and unspoken introspection. The ambience of sibilantly roaring tires from beneath us was the only other sound to break through my ears. I didn't know how to feel. I mean, he was a medic. Medics aren't supposed to die, right? But he did, just two weeks away from coming home. I don't think we spoke another word to one another on the way back to the unit. I recall staring out the window into the ether of thought for most of the ride back. Somewhere out there, there was one less of us now. I didn't know Boomer in life. Not really, anyway. Only in death. What a thing. To become friends with a dead man. You see, in the days after his ill-fated mission, I would learn stories as told by those who were there with him, those who knew him and those who loved him. I would meet his brothers, his mother, and his father. I would hold the remains of a kind man. Even in death, you could feel his light push through the cold steel of his casket. Over the next several days, my brothers and I would be sequestered to drill halls, practicing with endless staccato, the movements and mechanics befitting the actions of carrying a slain hero home. He was our brother. He deserved nothing less than perfection. We all drove our bodies into dehydration and muscle fatigue to get it right, over and over and over again. Drive the body, the mind will follow. I had trouble sleeping the night before Trenton. Trenton was the Air Force base that Boomer would be flying into upon his return from that land of sand and stone. I was sharing a room with three other men. I could hear the low growl orchestra of snoring and slumber. I was the only one singing out of tune. I was awake, woefully silent in body. Mind, however, that was as loud as any rumbling freight car. I wanted to do right by him and his family. They deserved that. We had practiced hard and for long hours leading up to this horrible day. Sure, but what if it wasn't enough? What if I was out of step at one point and his poor mom noticed? How horrible that would be. My body refused me comfort, and my mind continued confabulations with fearful thoughts. Knowing that I would not sleep, I slowly and quietly withdrew myself from the thin padding of my military cot and slinked into the hallway. I walked with exaggeratingly quiet gait down the halls of the barracks, nearing the phone bank. The bare soles of my feet lamented sticky orations of flesh tearing away from linoleum. I was nervous about what I was about to do. Call home. My mother was currently not speaking with me and had not been answering the phone as of late, much to my dismay. My pertinacity would see me call her at least once a day in efforts to break the wall of obstinacy that so characterized my mother. A futile endeavor. I wanted to speak with her, though. This all felt so horribly awful. We had been given terribly intimate details on the death of Boomer. Details I would much like to forget. Another futile endeavor. Why was my mother not speaking to me? Well, when I left home to join the army, 
We had been residing in a three-bedroom, subsidized home. My mother couldn't work. She was too sick. She had cancer. So we had to rely on the fluctuating kindness of government and small-town welfare systems. Not an easy way to grow up. When I left home and began my training, the lease was up for renewal. My mother was not able to say when or even if I would return home to this place. As such, she was requested, well, told, that she had to relocate to another unit. There was only a one-bedroom available, meaning that my brother was out of a place to live as well. My mother did not function well alone. So, she began doing what she so often did, devise a plan in her head and assume that she had talked to us about it and that we had all agreed with her, a conversation that we were always absent for. My mother knew that I had a steady job now. She knew that my brother was also great with money and he too worked full-time. So, she thought that she would get us together and buy a house. By the time I had learned of her master plan, my mother had already found a real estate agent, picked out a home, viewed it, liked it, wanted it, and said that we would take it. Now keep in mind, I was new to the army at this point. That means that I'm just a private. That also means that I'm not really making bank. Not by a long shot. You don't join the army to become rich. When my mother asked me if I would co-sign a mortgage with my brother, I apprehensively and timorously declined. I just didn't have the money. My mother felt slighted by this, so she told me that she was going to kill herself. And when that threat did not work nor sway my mind, she banished me to the muted aisle of the family corner. Usually, it was a transient aisle. My mother was often not speaking to one of my siblings or another at any given time. I guess now it was my turn in the batter's box. A turn that lasted two years. I picked up the plastic receiver and dialed the number home. I heard the metallic purr of a calling line. A call doomed to go unanswered. I left a message. Hey, Mom. I'm sorry, I, I know it's late. It's late here, too. I just... I could really use a talk right now. I, I have to carry Boomer tomorrow. I'm scared. I don't want to cry, you know? In front of his family? In front of his brother? You know? Mom, if you can hear me, just... Pick up, please. I'm sorry, Mom. I... Mom? Okay, well, I love you. It'll be on the news if you, uh, if you want to watch it. Good night, Mom. I love you. What you just heard was exactly what I said that day. I know that because when it comes to my mom, my memory is painfully clear. I didn't sleep a wink. I watched as the black canvas of overhead gave way to the gray hue of a new day from outside my window. When the alarm clocks rang, I was already seated on the edge of my bed. I greeted the lads with a cordial and waited nod. I was fucking exhausted. We all remained reticent as we donned our meticulously tailored wares. Ceremonial dress belts, gloves and keepers, all of it. Perfect and without flaw. The way it had to be. The way it should be. The way it was. That day, while wearing my fitted jacket, I would carry my brother. I would watch as his family crumbled internally as they watched us slide his remains into the mouth of a hungry hearse. I would meet General Rick Hillier that day, too. He would speak like only he can. He told us that we did our country and Boomer's family proud. Uh, I don't know. After that initial repatriation, we retreated back to our barracks, packed up our uniforms and belongings, and readied to fly from Ontario to B.C. The jacket was worn throughout all of these days. 
It was worn when Boomer was laying to rest. I watched as the earth embraced his essence and welcomed him back to the nature of all things. I would repeat this woeful experience by burying another brother, a man I knew, a man I knew quite well, Corporal Michael Stalker. My jacket and I watched as the earth took him away as well. That was in May of 2008. In July of 2008, I was freshly released from the army. Mere days, in fact. The jacket was no longer mine to wear. But on that god-awful day in July, when my phone rang with the news of another loss, another brother, I held its now formless frame in my hands. Many things had been soaked into the fabric of that jacket up to that point. My tears included. And on that day in July, it welcomed more from me. Colin was dead. And I was just a nameless, faceless civilian now, holding the folded fabric of who I once was. A soldier. A wounded soldier. That jacket now hangs in my closet. Never to be worn again. Jacket number two. Men's. Size. Large. Tall. Shell. 100% polyester. Color. High visibility yellow. Multi-pattern reflective. This jacket was issued to me as new. It came embraced within a plastic sheath. A fabricated placenta, if you will. Symbolism for a medic born. The vividness of color was intimidating to the naked eye. They meant what they said. High visibility, indeed. When I removed this garment from my closet, where it now hangs indolently alongside other arbitrary wares, the colors boast less life, and the magnificence of new has given way to the etchings of experience and time. To the untrained eye, this may seem like any other work jacket, speckled with dirt and grime, stained with the unknown and well-utilized over some years. But to my eyes, my well-worn eyes, this simple coat and its woven fabrics hold a beautifully sullen story of love and loss. Hearing the fibers sing against themselves as the jacket rustles within my quivering hands is what tells the monologue of that story. You see a jacket, I see a portal through time and space. Tactile time travel. The sleeves of this coat are stapled with the ethereal claw prints of desperate hands. I look to my right sleeve, and yes, I can remember that old lady. And to my left, yeah, I recall him too. There used to be a hood attached to the rear neck of this jacket. All that remains now is an injured zipper and the spider legs of threading. The hood died on the side of the road beside the mangled metal tomb that held within it a trembling teenager and his dead friend. It fell victim to the craggy claws of broken glass and bent frame, one fantastic sound of fabric lamenting away from itself, and my jacket was now hoodless, mortally wounded. Me. Not the jacket. I just didn't know it yet. It rested atop of my shoulders and clung to my arms on the day that I told that mother that her son was not coming back. As she fell apart, the sleeves of my medic's wear willingly accepted the currency of tears as a form of payment for the news provided. I can show you where her grief landed and pooled if you like. You may be wondering by now, have I ever thought to wash the jacket and mention? And the answer is yes. Plethorically. I had to. On any given day, this wear of mine would receive unsolicited droplets of vomit from the sick, injured, and drunk, blood from the assaulted, assaulter, and the exsanguinating. Brain, blood, and tissue have all kissed the sleeves of this burdensome coat with their nefarious lips. 
and perhaps the sickest thing that this coat has ever worn is my willingness to do this all over again and again and again. And you know what? I would do it tomorrow, too. The funny thing, the uniform is. On its own, it becomes merely a desultory garment, easily lost among the slain laundry on the floor. But when worn or viewed by its wearer, it becomes a map of places traveled, sights seen, and experiences lived. Pieces of me are tightly woven into the fabric of that deep navy blue and reflective yellow. Forever and always I will have lost an innocence and blissful ignorance after seeing the world through my uniform's painfully clear eyes. I say that because without the dawning of said uniform, I would not have been permitted nor welcomed into the deep underbelly of the world that lives ethereally atop of this one. There is a duality that lives within the city for me now. A street corner is no longer simply a street corner. It is where that man was beaten with a pipe. I can see his blood on the pavement, even though you likely cannot. That apartment by the university? Look three stories up, and starting from the right, count three windows to the left. That's where she was. The girl in the tub. Lifeless and pale. On that day, we were too late. The reaper found the address first. She was gone when we got there. She left her body behind, though. And my sleeves were dampened after checking to make sure. To make absolutely sure. I wore that jacket on cold winter nights, standing on the side of roadways, hideaways, and quiet little side streets, working on this person or that person over there. Like a dog trained to wait while having a biscuit rested atop of its nose, I was trained that whenever I wore that tailored wear and heard the overhead tones of dispatch go off, it was time to feast on whatever awaited on the other side of that call screen. I wore that jacket and its noisy design to be seen by the world from afar, so as to avoid being hit by those careless rubberneckers taking pictures as they drove recklessly on by. There is a sad truth to me now. Without that jacket and its purpose, I feel invisible to the world around me. I can see everything clearly, even the dead sometimes, but the world doesn't see me. That guy on his cell phone bumps into me on his way to wherever, but no eye contact is made. The harem of schoolgirls that walk in a width of three, I have no room to move past nor around. I retreat to the farthest section of the pavement of the grass as they slink on by with laughs aplenty. Invisible to them I was. When I see an accident unfold before me, or just prior to my arrival while on my walks, I feel like Superman with no cape, standing in a pair of superfluously red underwear. I know what to do, but no one can see me nor hear me. I have blended into the masses of insignificant. Now I am only the bland and ordinary passerby. When I get home, I unlock my door, head inside, and hang my Carhartt Brown on the hook eagerly awaiting on the back side of my door. And before moving any further, before shuffling one more inch, I cast a gaze at the closet door to my left, knowing what's inside. Superman's cape. A deep, navy blue, and reflective, yellow cape. It's mere feet away from me, yet it feels like a world apart. The closet acts as a coffin. That part of me is dead. The reaper wins. Again. I walk inside, passing along a hallway festooned with certificates, diplomas, and plaques of medals earned, only to feel no pride, but rather a sting and swell of what once was. I sit on the couch, and although I am dressed in a simple man's button-up, blue jeans, and boots, I feel the ghostly weight of a jacket once worn in the pursuit of preserving life. Utali sesita vive, so that others may live. Two jackets, one man. 
many lives loved and lost. Who knew that a thread needle could be so powerful? There's a third jacket. I know there is. I just haven't found it yet. But I will. <laughs>